What's really good, y'all? This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. And this week, Gene, we're digging into the Code Switch mailbag. What? Or virtual mailbox, because none of this is snail mail. Let's go paperless. <laughs> I would actually love to get a real letter. No, you don't. Real letters no? are bad. They're always bad. All right, fine. <laughs> they always portend <laughs> anger. <laughs> Fine. Whatever we're calling it, we're mm-hmm. getting into some meaty questions posed by you, our listeners, over email and on social media about recent episodes. And we've got a thorny identity question, I know you a love subject those. very close to my heart. Oh yes, um, our teammate Adrian Florido tackles a Twitter query about what's at stake for churches who protect immigrants here illegally. But before we get to those questions, Shereen, we got checked very lovingly mm-hmm. by a listener about our recent episode on Native American hunting rights near Yellowstone National Park. That story was about the lingering. Tensions around native hunting rights in Montana. You might remember that in that episode, Nate Hedgie of Montana Public Radio, shout out to Nate, talked to a guy named Bill Hoppy. Now, Bill Hoppy leads tours of big game hunts, and he takes issue with the hunting rights that are reserved and protected for natives exclusively. Here's some of what Bill Hoppy said to Nate in that episode. We all live in the same country. We're all citizens of the same country. They keep talking about they want, they're a sovereign nation. I'll give them that. They can be their sovereign nation on their reservation. But when they come off that reservation, they should abide by all the other regulations. I mean, we don't allow them to drive 100 miles an hour on the highways. If it gets worse and worse and worse, you know, it wouldn't be the first treaty that was ever amended or probably broken, taken away. (laughs) So, Shereen, I called up that listener who tweeted at us Mm -hmm. and asked her to explain herself some more. I am Adrienne Keene. Um, I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and I am an assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. Adrian thinks that we should have put a brighter spotlight around what Hoppy said. She characterizes his statements as a continuation of a history of overt racism by white people towards Native Americans. And we should say here that Nate Hedgie, the reporter who did that story, actually did push back in that piece. He said that this was part of a, quote, terrible legacy of treaties being broken in America. Yeah, the pushback was there, Mm -hmm. but the team wrestled in our edits about whether it was enough, you know? Yeah, and to Adrian King's point, journalists need to be especially on point and sensitive when it comes to Native issues. This is never anything that we're ever taught. Folks have gotten a little more used to correcting language around race or ableism or these other things, but we haven't yet gotten to that point about settler colonialism and about Native issues. Yeah, so, Shereen, Adrian's point was that Because Americans have so little historical context, it's especially important to check arguments made by, you know, descendants of settlers like Bill Hoppe. She says people don't know enough to know whether they should be skeptical or questioning of bad arguments. For a while, it's going to be that we have to be super explicit about those critiques because people know so little. Um, But at some point, I think it'll get to the point where we can let people see things for themselves and understand what's going on. I hear Adrian's criticism loud and clear, and we're always trying to make sure we're not giving an equal platform to unequal ideas. Always trying to keep in mind that the past informs the present. Yeah, you might remember on the podcast before, we've talked about the challenges of when to interrupt with the explanatory comma, right? Um, And, you know, we've talked about the way covering race tends to confound a lot of very precious, deeply held journalistic ideas about objectivity. And to listen back to those episodes, in case you haven't heard them, search for the titles What Does Objectivity Mean to Journalists of Color and Hold Up, Time for an Explanatory Comma. And a big thanks to Adrian Keene for tweeting at us. Appreciate you. So back to the mailbag. Carolyn France listened to our episode about sanctuary churches that ran a couple weeks ago. Those are the churches, you know, that have congregations that are protecting immigrants from possible deportation. 
by allowing them to move into the church. And in that episode, our Code Switch teammate Adrian Florido explored the tension over whether churches should publicize the stories of the immigrants they take in. Some leaders of the sanctuary movement think that's important because doing so puts a human face on the government's deportation policies. But Adrian also spoke with a longtime activist named Jeanette Visquera, who has taken sanctuary inside a church in Colorado and thinks the decision on whether to go public should be up to the person facing deportation. So we brought Adrian back. What's good, man? Hey, how are you guys? So Carolyn France tweeted at me, Adrian, and mm-hmm. she said what was missing from the discussion was the risks churches take by allowing immigrants facing deportation to take sanctuary. She said that lawyers told her congregation they have to go public with immigrant stories to protect themselves from punishment from the government. Right. And in the case of France's church, she said it was concerned that the IRS could take away its nonprofit status. Mm-hmm. And because of that, she said the church had decided that any immigrant wanting to take sanctuary there must be willing to go public with their story. I guess the question is, can churches get in trouble for doing this? Right, because the Trump administration has been leaning into threats to punish sanctuary cities, Mm -hmm. but hasn't really said anything about sanctuary churches. Right, no, it hasn't. Uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement has a policy not to go into schools uh, and churches to deport people, and that's why people take sanctuary inside of churches. But we actually don't know whether the government will prosecute the churches themselves. But Adrian, there's history here. You talked about it in the episode. Um, There was a sanctuary movement in the 1980s established because tens of thousands of Central Americans were fleeing war and poverty. Were the churches punished back then? Yeah, they were. Um, But to answer Carolyn France's Twitter question, they didn't lose their nonprofit status. Uh, That's what attorney Peter Shea told me. Uh, He's worked on immigration issues for decades, uh, representing and advising, you know, lots of sanctuary churches. And just last week, L.A. appointed him to advise the city on immigration issues. Uh, Anyway, Shea told me that what the government did do in the 80s was prosecute clergy. Prosecutors went after them using harboring laws. Churches in the Southwest were harboring people. That is, they were hiding those Central American refugees that the government was looking for. And when the clergy appealed their convictions in federal court, they lost Here's Peter Shea. The Court of Appeals made very clear that the convictions were being sustained not just because they provided sanctuary, not because they let undocumented people sleep in their churches. It was affirmative acts aimed at avoiding detection of the immigrants they were helping to shelter and provide transportation to. Ah, lawyer speak. My husband's a lawyer, so let me break that down. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, They got in trouble for keeping sanctuary plans secret from the government, not necessarily for letting people take sanctuary. Exactly. And they were sentenced to probation for that. Gotcha. Got it. Okay. So Shea says the court's decision signaled something really important. Churches should go public. But here's the thing. He also said going public doesn't necessarily mean holding a press conference or, you know, sharing details about a person's life with the whole world. We will simply send a letter to the Attorney General of the United States or to the Secretary of Homeland Security, and we will say that so-and-so has taken sanctuary in, in this and that church, and we're, we're so advising you of that. So if you guys remember, that's exactly what Jeanette Vizguerra said in our episode. Uh, Jeanette Vizguerra was the woman taking sanctuary in the church in Denver. But this certainly isn't settled law, right? We really don't know what would happen if the government got really aggressive in trying to go after sanctuary churches. And if they did go after sanctuary churches, wouldn't those churches want public opinion on their side? And how do you get public support if you're just sending a quiet letter to the government? Right. 
Yeah, and, and that's the balancing act that churches face as they think about their own interests versus what the people they're taking into sanctuary want. Thank you for stopping by, Adrian. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks, guys. All right, Shireen, you say you're Persia Rican. So why, I don't understand, why aren't you Puerto Iranian, though? Well, some people say Persian. Some people say Iranian. Okay. And we're going to talk about why after the break. Goody. Stay with us. Support for Code Switch and the following message come from Squarespace. Get a unique domain and create a beautiful website using Squarespace's all-in-one platform and award-winning templates. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, ever. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code CODESWITCH for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. All right, y'all. NPR is working with the Knight Foundation to better understand how listeners like you spend time with CodeSwitch and other podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.podcastingsurvey, all one word, it takes less than 10 minutes, and you do all of us at Code Switch a huge favor by filling it out and mm-hmm. saying wonderful things about us. Woot. That's npr.podcastingsurvey, all one word, dot com. Thank you. All right, y'all, we're back with your questions. And here's one, Shireen, that came mm-hmm. to us by email after your Persian New Year episode. Hey, Shireen. My name is Donia. I'm 23, and I live in Houston. Donia Sharif's mom is black and her dad was Iranian. He Mm -hmm. died when she was really young and she moved away from his side of the family. So Mm -hmm. she's still piecing together that part of her identity. Like when people say, what are you? I say that I'm black and Persian because growing up, I thought Iranian was the nationality and Persian was the race. So, Shireen, you always (laughs) use both when you ID yourself. Like. Totally, and I did that in the Noru's episode, which confused Onya and inspired her to write in and ask the question. And I'm curious too, Shireen, like, which is it, Persian or Iranian? And here to help us answer this question is Neda Magbule. She's author of the forthcoming book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans, and the Everyday Politics of Race. Neda is also an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. Welcome to Code Switch. Hey, Shireen. So it's true, I use Iranian and Persian totally interchangeably. But Netta, do they mean the same thing? Technically, Iranian is a national descriptor and Mm. Persian is an ethnic descriptor. So what that means is that not all Iranians are Persian. Other ethnicities that an Iranian person could be are Kurd, Azeri, Baluch, Arab, or even Armenian. Those can all be ethnicities that are Iranian in nationality, but not ethnically in Persian. You know, the listener is totally right when she notices that you use it pretty interchangeably because... That's kind of how it goes in everyday English. So it is kind of confusing. It's also sort of a fail not to be glib, but from a brand identity perspective, um, some younger people will say, you know, why can't we just come to a consensus already? What are we calling ourselves? I grew up in Northern California and understanding Iranian and and Persian, I always thought it was a political thing. Like if you said you were Iranian, it was more like you were down with the people. There are these debates where some people argue that if you're calling yourself Persian, you're delusional or this is a cop-out way to identify yourself if you're from Iran. That it's like a way that our community, right, for decades has avoided the stigmas associated with Iran from like the hostage crisis forward. And it reminds me of this 
amazing bit by the comedian Maz Jobrani from the Axis of Evil comedy tour. He's like, Iranians don't even call themselves Iranian. It sounds friendlier to say I'm Persian, like the cat. <laughs> you know, it sounds nicer and friendlier. We even a smile. When we say we're Persian, we smile. I am Persian. I am Persian. I, I am not dangerous. I am Persian. I am Persian, like the cat. Meow. I am the cat. Look, I mean, my own personal tendency is definitely to associate as Iranian. I think it's the more inclusive term. And I do totally hear what people are saying when they say, you know, calling yourself Persian could be seen as a cop-out move. But actually, I think in real life, the evidence is pretty mixed. So in my book, I analyze a slew of different violent hate crimes in the U.S. against Iranian Americans. And there are cases where assailants are yelling things like, go to hell, Persian, before they beat a kid's ass. So calling yourself Persian in 2017 doesn't even seem like an effective tactic to put yourself in a productive bubble anyway. So Jean, Donia is sort of right. Iranian is the nationality. Persian is the ethnicity. But because they're used so interchangeably in the U.S. and saying Persian confuses a lot of people, Netta says let's just call ourselves Iranian and call it a day. I feel like, though, I feel like there's going to be a whole lot of people who disagree with that. Which is fine. That's fodder for another mailbag episode. And that's why I'm going to keep it status quo and keep using both Iranian and Persian. (laughs) And like I said, Donia's sort of right. Donia says her race is black and Persian, but Persian is an ethnicity, not a race. Right. Okay. Neda Magbule calls Iranians racial hinges. You said, wait, real quick. You said racial hinges, like like hinges, like a door. Right. And Netta says you have to go back a century to understand our complicated racial history here in the U.S. There are these what's called racial prerequisite cases about 100 years ago when all sorts of immigrants from all sorts of countries had to prove their whiteness to the court in order to become naturalized American citizens. Uh, You had to be white and you also had to be a man, too. Mm. Uh, But that's a whole other question. (laughs) Uh, So, for example, like 100 years ago, um, an Arab man having to go to the court and somehow prove that he's white or a South Asian man. Uh, But one of the understudied features of all of these cases is that before Iranians were even in the United States, they're in the margins of these other groups' cases. Mm -hmm. So Arab and Armenian claimants, they say, you know, we're not Iranians because those fools are dark, they're fire-worshipping, they're Mohammedans, and that's all code, right, for, like, Iranians are Zoroastrian, they're Muslim, in contrast to the Arabs and Armenians who were coming to the United States at that time, who were majority Christian, they were, like, allegedly oriented toward Europe in ways that they were arguing Iranians simply weren't. And then you also see these old cases involving South Asian claimants, where Iranians are showing up in the margins of their cases being used in the exact opposite way. So a common strategy for a South Asian claimant 100 years ago was to say, you know, there's this like many centuries old presence of lighter skinned Persian speaking Parsis in India. That's and these right. were the communities, right, that they tried to prove direct connection to. And they'd say, you know, that these people exist in our country is proof of South Asian whiteness. That is fascinating. Okay, so let me try and digest this. An Arab man is trying to claim that he's white by saying, look, I'm nothing like these. Persian Iranian people who worship fire and you know are very much yes very Muhammad much darker and like yes right? or worship Muhammad 
South Asians come here and they're like, oh, actually, we're very much like these Persians and we're white like them. It, that is just yes, so yes. And such the, like, a trip to me. They'll even go into linguistics, right? Like they'll say Sanskrit and ancient Persian are from the same branch on this, like, you know, uh, sort of family tree of languages and they're closer to the European languages than Arabic and the Semitic languages. And so in these cases, Iranians are a racial hinge. They just swing back and forth, white, not white, depending on what group needs to use them, however. And, you know, there is this gray area that Iranians and Arabs fall into when it comes to race in America. There's no census box to check if you're from the Middle East or North Africa. So, you know, a majority of MENA folks check white. Are Iranians white? Well, you know, the central argument in my book is that Iranian-Americans and other groups, uh, the MENA groups, live a racial paradox where, like you said, they're counted as white by the federal government in documents like the census. And even for Iranians, they circulate their own myths about whiteness. Uh, but in fact, they sometimes possess these everyday experiences that are closer to those shared by communities of color in the U.S., like what? There's this quote, uh, and it conveys this pretty well. Uh, it's this young woman, Roya, and she's describing to me what it's like to be told which race box to check in high school. And so she says, and this is her quote, white teachers and counselors have tried to correct me. They say, if you're Iranian, then you're white. And it's like, okay, can you pronounce my last name correctly, please? Tell me what other white countries are sanctioned, exploited, vilified the way Iran is right now. And am I white like you when I'm at the airport? No, I'm not white, end quote. So what's interesting is, you know, she's recounting this to mm. me, and her frustration was really palpable. But in reality, in the moment, she was 16 years old. She didn't actually push back against her teachers. She just kind of begrudgingly accepted that they were enforcing what she saw as, like, the technical rules of race in America. But... Roya's own high school classmates, they seem to understand the rules differently. So she described it to me this way. This is her quote. They were like, you're brown, little chola girl. Come sit with us. And you know, because my last name was different, I'm hairy, I'm Persian, my neighborhood, I was almost ashamed of my identity. But Mexican people accepted me. They saved me from hating me. End quote. Well, Donia Sharif, I think we answered your question and a little more with that. Thanks for writing in. I know I learned something. I'm about to call you like Puerto Racial Hinge from that. (laughs) (laughs) Puerto Persia Rican Hinge. Persia Rican Hinge. (laughs) But that conversation about Persian identity, Shireen, gives us Mm -hmm. the perfect segue to another question from a different reader. I love it when that happens. Hi, my name is Christina Ogilvie. I live in D.C. and I currently work at the Embassy of Kuwait as an academic advisor. And Shireen, she heard your reporting from Holyoke, the Mm -hmm. most Puerto Rican place on the U.S. mainland. You got it right this time. Good job, Jean. (laughs) That episode coincided with the 100-year anniversary of Puerto Ricans becoming U.S. citizens. I was going to say American citizens, but I know you wouldn't think me for that. That's right. (laughs) And so... America is more than just... The U.S. Mm, that's Yellow Rosa. There's South America. There's Central America. <laughs> Canada is part of it. But so you went to, <laughs> so you went to Holyoke to ask this question, right? You said you wanted to figure out what does it mean to be Puerto Rican in America a century after Puerto Ricans become U.S. citizens, right? And you got all in your feelings about the other part of your heritage. You were crying. You know? <laughs> but that left her in her feelings, too. 
I just want to write a thank you to the entire Code Switch team because I love the podcast in general. And the app about Puerto Rico is especially amazing and devastating in the best kind of way. When Shireen broke down at the end of that episode, I don't know. I don't have a real connection to my Latinx heritage like she does, since I believe culture is passed down through the mother. But knowing that others have that feeling of being unmoored and adrift in a society that values or fetishizes, let's be honest, cultural and racial otherness, yeah. I really wish I'd known I wasn't the only one feeling like this back through middle, high school, and even college. I guess I do have a question, though. Shireen pronounces all the Spanish names and terms when she talks with a Latinx accent rather than like a gringa. And I just keep thinking, I don't have the stones to do that. It would feel performative to me given my lack of experience with that part of my ancestry. I can pronounce things correctly, but choose not to, to avoid having to own stock, say, in a cultural heritage I feel I have no rights to. I can't be the only one with racial imposter syndrome. So do you hear from other listeners who feel like fakes? Have y'all heard from other mixed kids out there who feel like they exist in a cultural and racial quantum zone? Gotta hope the answer is yes, or I will feel so goofy. Anyway, thank you again. Keep up the good work. Christina Ogilvie. Christina, just so you know, <laughs> I totally feel like a Persian imposter. And I think you're definitely onto something with the mom passing down the culture thing. Yeah, um, My I, mom's I, Puerto Rican, so... I really wanted to ask you about that mom passing down the culture thing. We're going to get to that because Shireen, Christina and I had this heavy, real-ass conversation. Mm. We're going to hear more of that conversation in a future episode. But to the question she posed, friends, are you suffering from racial imposter syndrome? (laughs) (laughs) We actually really want to hear from you if you are feeling something similar to Christina. Holler at us at codeswitch at npr.org. We might have just the prescription you need. We are going to talk about this at length in a future episode, so please get at us. And before we get out of here, my favorite part of the show, songs that are giving us life mm-hmm. and here to give us his recommendation is our amazing intern. You've probably heard his name a million times in the credits if you've listened all the way through to the end of the show, which I hope you do. <laughs> his name is George Encinas. Uh, George spelled Jorge. Yeah, we called him Jorge for like the first <laughs> two weeks he was here. <laughs> hey, George. Hey, how's it going, Trey? Uh, good. What's your song? Uh, I picked the the Kinks, uh, Dead End Street. The Kinks. The Kinks. Not kinky. No. <laughs> so why the Kinks? Why Dead End Street? Dead End Street. Well, it's not so much an uplifting song. You know, it's giving me life, but it's a good song, and it's you know tells a story from the '60s that's still relevant today for a lot of people, which is working way harder than you need to and still not getting ahead. That's real, George. <laughs> Thank you for rocking with us, George. It was a very... How long was it? 12 weeks? It feels like 14, a long... 14. Way longer than that. Yeah. George, yeah. you That's, did so much in such a short period of time. Oh, well, thank you. It was great being here. I mean, it was a great team, so I'm happy I got the chance. Aww. So what are you going to do when you go back to Tucson? Probably have to freelance or something until I find a job. So, Holler at George. I'll be around. It's spelled Jorge. <laughs> it's spelled Jorge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. That is our show this week. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Sammy Yenigan and Walter Ray Watson produced this episode, and we had original music by Ramteen Arab Louie. A shout-out to the rest of the Code Switch team. Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bate, and Kat Chow, our intern, who you just met. This is George Encinas. Our editor is Juleka Lantigua-Williams. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Be easy. Peace.
Give us 10 minutes or so and you get a sense of the stories and big ideas of the day. The stuff you really need to know and why it matters. Start your day with Up First weekday mornings by 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.